Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello and welcome to this edition of Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter, which is produced in partnership with Chelsea Green Publishing UK. Chelsea Green, an employee-owned independent publisher, see publishing as a tool for cultural change and ecological stewardship. Their books not only look and feel beautiful, printed on recycled paper with vegetable-based inks, they provide readers with hands-on information on organic food, nature conservation and the environment, on gardening and ecology, on sustainable economics, progressive politics and farming. Today, I am delighted to be joined by two Chelsea Green authors to talk about farming, politics and a sustainable approach to thinking and acting small and local. Jane Davidson spent over a decade as a minister in the Welsh Government, first for education and then for environment, sustainability and housing. She has been described as the mother, creator and architect of the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act. But now she tries to live her life as lightly as possible on a small holding in Wales. Jane's book, Future Gen, Lessons from a Small Country, was published in May 2020. Jane, hello, welcome and thank you for joining us on the pod. Hello, Amanda. I'm so pleased to be here. My second guest, Chris Smage, was previously a university-based social scientist at the University of Surrey and Goldsmiths College London. But he left that life nearly two decades ago to live and work on a small farm in Somerset. He is an agroecologist, a writer and blogger, and his new book, A Small Farm Future, is subtitled Making the Case for a Society Built Around Local Economies, Self-Provisioning, Agricultural Diversity and a Shared Earth. Chris, that's a conversation in its own right, but hopefully we'll pick up on some of those themes. Hello, welcome to the pod and thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. It's it's great to be here. Um, Today we're trying to talk about the concept of small, but that's really a bit of a misnomer for both of you because you really are huge thinkers, big thinkers, big picture thinkers, but in the context of looking at things from a small local perspective. So Jane, I wondered if I could start with you because I think your work around the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act really provides a framework and a way into this discussion for a sustainable approach to living. Could you tell us a little bit about what the Act is for those listeners who might not be aware of it? Yes, I I think just a sort of very brief history uh, for um, people who may be on on, on this call and know nothing around um, devolution in the UK anyway. But back in 1999, um, Scotland, uh, Wales and Northern Ireland uh, acquired powers for the individual nations, uh, all different powers. And one of the features of the Welsh powers was that it was given a duty to promote sustainable development in everything it did. And as one of the new assembly members coming coming in to uh, the new legislature, you know, I just thought this was incredibly exciting and incredibly far-seeing. But actually it became something that was really difficult to deliver because how do you promote sustainable development if you don't define it in law? And what does promotion look like? And it was the sort of 10 years um, of the government trying to deliver on this uh, that meant that when I was given the ministerial responsibility, it became clear to me quite quickly that actually we needed to really frame this um, in a more a constrained way. We needed to put it into a regulatory framework that people could understand. And that's where the idea of the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act 
came from. The idea that, yes, of course, we needed not only to promote sustainable development, we needed to deliver it. And we needed to define what that looked like. So essentially, the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act has two core components. The first one is there are seven goals. They're linked to the Sustainable Development Goals, um, which makes Wales the first country in the world to actually put into place a legal mechanism linked to the Sustainable Development Goals. And then there are five ways of working. Unusually, the five ways of working are in the law so that all the public services in Wales, which are responsible to the Welsh Government, have to now think long term, they have to think preventatively, they have to integrate their thinking around the goals, they have to collaborate with each other, and they have to involve people about whom decisions are being made. And if I just give a, a two small examples from the Act so that people can see how different this is in terms of a government's value framework. The government defines resilience as a nation which not only maintains but enhances its biodiverse natural environment uh, with healthy functioning ecosystems. And it defines prosperity as innovative, productive and low carbon uh, within the limits of the global environment. So immediately you've got an entirely different framing of how now prosperity and the uh, encouragement and maintenance and enhancement of biodiversity are happening in law. So the law now requires people to deliver on this, not just promote it. The law was passed in 2015. Uh, all the public organisations were given uh, three years in terms of creating their first plans. So now we're still in the very early stages of those plans being delivered. Jane, thank you. And what is absolutely fascinating about this is that for those of us who live and work in the sustainable space in whatever way in the environmental space, we almost absorb naturally without thinking about it, the link between well-being and sustainable living and the environment. For, for many people, you talk about sustainability and they just think about carbon emissions. So I'm really, I find it fascinating, but also really encouraging that, that there's this element of foresight and that you've thought about the well-being, not just of those of us who are on the planet now and our impact, but the future generations. And that's absolutely vital, isn't it? This idea that we take decisions now for the long term for the benefit of, of those who are coming after us. One of the things I, I found very problematic in the context of carrying out my, my role as minister, um, particularly with regard to uh, energy, was, was actually, you know, back in, in 2009, um, I was being asked to think about creating um, deep geological disposal for nuclear power, for example. And I was just thinking, this is a complete nonsense. We shouldn't be thinking about deep geological disposal for nuclear power. We shouldn't be using nuclear power if we haven't worked out what to do with the waste. And it just, you know, it just sort of struck me that so many of the problems that um, you know we deal with in, in our or governments have to deal with every day, the thinking is the wrong way round. It was the same thing when um, I was I was asked very early on in my political career um, as environment minister to be able to nominate new sites for landfill. And I was saying I don't want any new sites for landfill. What I want to do is I want to dramatically increase recycling. 
Now, at the time, Wales was um, uh, among the worst in the world. Wales is now one of the three best in the world and has never had to create a new landfill site. So we've got to turn these arguments completely on their head. And I noticed only this week that uh, still the government, the UK government, is looking for sites for deep geological disposal. It has not managed to create any sites in the last decade, and yet it is promoting new nuclear power stations. So I do think this issue around saying, actually, let's, let's reflect on where we are. Let's think about what government has done and is doing to the aspirations of future generations. Because we really know that future generations are going to be the poorest ever. They're going to be poorer than our generation. And with COVID, et cetera, they have fewer opportunities for jobs. They have fewer opportunities for decent incomes. They have fewer opportunities for housing. Uh, they're paying off university costs, et cetera, et cetera. So I just feel that actually the framing of the Future Generations Act uh, really helps people see that if we really want to deliver on that Brundtland principle of sustainable development, that we take you know, action in the context of sustainable development now, which does not compromise on future generations me meeting their own needs, then actually that's not just a better life for future generations, that's a better life for us. And the other thing that's really important in this is, oddly enough, this whole COVID issue has meant that people across the world are thinking about how we create better longer term solutions. So my book has probably had a greater resonance as a result. And right across the world, I've had huge amounts of support for this idea that governments should stop thinking short term. They should stop making short term decisions just for their voters. And actually responsible ethical governments should be taking this opportunity to think long term because we've got some very big long term problems that have been created by us. Climate change is at the forefront of that, which we should be dealing with now. And the future generations framework actually Thinking that way, it could have dealt with COVID because it would think about pandemics. It could have dealt with Black Lives Matter because it absolutely thinks about equality and the most disadvantaged. And it can absolutely, specifically in law, deal with climate change. So I'm not advocating the Wales model to everyone, but I'm advocating the framing of the Wales model. The idea of having a values framework that gives young people confidence that the government is on their side for both current and future generations. Yes, and that is really turning the, the approach to thinking and planning on its head, isn't it? And, and we don't, governments across the globe are not good at long term thinking. And Chris, what you've done in the work that you've been doing and your philosophy and approach and what I think you're trying to encapsulate in your book, A Small Farm Future, is, is doing just that. It's looking at this problem from completely the other way up. Um, because I think that it's fair to say that at the moment in the UK and probably globally, farming is huge. It's on a huge scale. It's about large farms, mass production, the quest for cheap food very often. And, and I think you're saying that that doesn't have to be the way. And there's a totally different way of doing this. Yeah, I mean, it, it, in many ways, it just sort of follows on from what, what Jane's been saying that, you know, the, the sort of mass scale food production sort of follows on from mass scale, but also short term sort of economic and political thinking. So I think 
you know, over the course of my lifetime, the global economy has grown. Um, I think uh, I forget the exact figure, but something like sixfold, that's all been powered or largely been powered by fossil energy. You know, globally, we're still relying sort of 85% of um, primary energy use globally is is based on fossil energy. And, you know, that is um, driving the, the sort of problems that Jane was talking about, climate change, also huge issues with, you know, water and uh, soil integrity. So, uh, so it's pretty clear that, you know, we're not going to be able to sort of continue in this way. We're not going to be able to grow the economy sixfold in the next 50 odd years. So we need some, some very different thinking. And, yeah, so part of what I argue in the book is, I mean, partly I think, you know, this, uh, um, it would be great if all the politicians in the world were like Jane, you know, but I've been looking at the, you know, the situation in Texas at the moment, for example, you know, we're going to have this sort of thing more and more with with shocking weather events that are going to have knock-on implications in terms of, you know, water and energy supply. And, you know, not everywhere is going to be like Wales. We're going to have politicians who are kind of shrugging their shoulders, essentially, and saying, oh, well, you know, people need to, um, you know, need to sort this out for themselves. And part of what I'm saying in the book is that, yeah, pe- people will need to sort this, this out for themselves. And people are eminently capable of doing it if they're given their heads, essentially. So, yeah, so we need smaller scale, more localized solutions. And, um, yeah, that's kind of going to happen by default, I think, in ways that potentially are, you know, are going to be troubling and, and, and chaotic. The advantage is that, you know, we can be sort of self-limiting. You know, we've, we've sort of got into this mindset of sort of increasing production, in, you know, sort of limitless needs, limitless energy and industrialization. We sort of need to get back to, a, you know, a, more fundamental questions about, you know, what is life about? You know, what do I need? How do I fit into my community? How do I fit into my local environment? So those are the sorts of, you know, that's the kind of philosophical framing that I try and develop in the book. But, you know, what I what I try and avoid is is sort of magic bullet solutions or saying that any of these things are easy, that, you know, that there's always trade-offs, there's always pros and cons. And, and you know, certainly if we do move towards a more localized economy and farm economy if there's more people in farming if we're more based in um you know in household production that you know that that raises uh, all sorts of practical and and political uh, and economic difficulties that I you know, I, you know I certainly don't claim that I've got all the answers and I don't try and lay out some blueprint for how you know my sort of grand scheme for how this is all going to work um, but I do try and lay out what some of the issues are and and, 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 you know, the, the, the sorts of things that we have to grapple with. I mean, there is a problem essentially here, isn't there? Because of the, you know, listeners will say that's great. You know, Jane and Chris are really lucky. They live on a small holding. They've got space. They've got land. I mean, there's a number of issues really in, in that model that some people might find difficult to get their heads around. One is that whole access to land and the and the cost of land and the inequitable d- distribution of land. And the other is that, it, it, you know, people need reasonably priced food. We know that cheap food doesn't really exist. And actually, you know, cheap food means that there's a person somewhere in the food chain paying the cost, the planet or or very often a community. But people do need access to reasonably priced food. So do the economies of scale work for a model like this? Because we've already got, you know, something like 3 million people in the UK alone who are suffering from malnutrition. So there's a problem with our food supply and our food distribution. So, 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 so that I suppose is my two questions, really. One is, is would it work economically? Could we afford to give people the access to the land that we need? 
And would we actually be able to produce enough food to be sustainable in that way without without those large agribusinesses filling that gap? Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I do some some modelling in in my book, which looks at that. And yeah, I mean, in terms of productivity um, per per acre, there's no question that we can produce uh, in enough food in, in in any kind of reasonable scenario. Probably, you know, we can uh, we can actually produce more food, perhaps with the emphasis on food rather than commodity. You know, so much of global farming is based on a handful of very processable commodity crops and we need actually to be thinking more about you know the food that we want to eat locally what what do you mean by that chris sorry a commodity prop what were you talking about animal feed or i mean it can be animal feed but you know basically we're very very dependent on cereal on a handful of cereal crops and grain legume crops that are very processable and transportable and and, you know there's there's nothing intrinsically wrong with those crops you know wheat would you know would be a key one in britain i'm certainly not arguing that we shouldn't be growing any wheat um but you know we perhaps should be thinking of it as food that we're growing locally rather than as um you know, a, 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 a sort of grain that is traded on, on you know, big scale on commodity markets. And, you know, part of the reason that we grow so many of these sorts of crops is because they're very storable, transportable, processable, whereas, thing, you know, fresh fruit and vegetables, nuts, uh, tree cr- crops, um, you know, these things don't really feature so much within the farmed landscape, you know, because they're not kind of incentivized, you know, they're harder to mechanize and, and, and commodify. But in terms of your questions about the, the the economics of it, I mean, I think it's interesting. We, you know, we need to have sort of holistic thinking where we're linking, you know, the price of food with the price of not only land but housing, uh, the price of energy and and the price of labour. And so, you know, all of these things connect up within the existing economy in 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 sort of problematic ways. I mean, we produce. You know, we we live in this sort of incredibly capitalized world, and a lot of that capital finds its way back into land values, mostly sort of urban housing prices, but also rural land yeah, in all sorts of ways. You know, in a rich country like the UK, energy is very cheap, whereas human labor is dear. So, you know, farming and you know, pretty much everything gets pushed towards mechanization rather than more labor intensive ways of, of working. And, and, you know, we know that long term we need to, to be investing in, in low carbon, more labor intensive sectors of which farming is certainly going to be one. And yeah, so I think, you know, because of the costs of land and housing being so high, then there's real pressure on food costs to be low and um, and that's driven by cheap energy. So we need to sort of turn that all around. But yeah, this is certainly not just about a few relatively well-off people sort of buying a nice small holding in the countryside and, and and doing perfectly nicely. Thank you. You know, this is about really quite a fundamental restructuring that's that's going to happen anyway. You know, as part of the, the issue here is, you know, I, I don't think we have much choice. Uh, so, you know, so we need to think about this, but certainly access to land, you know, to making it feasible for ordinary people to access land. Uh, And again, you know, I think we need to break down some of the distinctions between uh, professional farming, large scale farming and and sort of amateur gardening or growing, you know, we we can sort of think about this on a continuum from, you know, people just doing a, you know, a little bit of backyard gardening or sort of community gardens and allotments, sort of part time small holding through to, um, you know, people who are full-time or commercial farmers, you know, we need to sort of 
have a you know incorporate this into a wider debate about you know how we provide for ourselves you know how we provide food and the other fiber and the other things that we need for ourselves and how we get more people on on the land um but for sure i think part of that is going to have to be probably uh food as a relatively higher proportion of of our expenditure as it was you know sort of 50 odd years ago people were spending much more of their disposable in- income on food but much less on housing and accommodation so um and that's going to be driven by energy availability as well you know so all of these things interact in quite complex ways they do but that's a very hard um circle to square isn't it particularly as we you know we were talking a few moments ago about the pandemic and one of the um you know distressing scenes that we've seen during the pandemic is the the rise of of people's reliance on food banks and people's access to food. And, you know, we talk about food poverty and fuel poverty. I mean, let's just call it poverty because that's what it is. But, but you know, people cannot afford to eat well and feed their children well in for large parts of our community. So, so the idea that suddenly our food will become much more expensive as a way of generating a more sustainable lifestyle might be quite difficult for some people to, to get their heads around and quite, you know, unattractive, I think it's fair to say. Well, yeah, sure. But I mean, I think, you know, there's the the other side of that coin is that, you know, we've had this system that basically has said, you know, don't worry about food and farming. That's all being taken care of by large scale farmers in heavily mechanized ways. You know, we're going to develop the economy. We're going to create jobs that's going to spread wealth throughout the world. And, you know, we're seeing already in numerous ways how that model isn't working and and the, uh, you know, certainly globally, but also in this country, the growth of poverty, the growth of reliance on food banks is, is, is a sort of indicator of that. So I think we need a, you know, a real thorough rethink and, um, and certainly more greater equity has to be part of that. So, you know, that conversation we were just having about household access to the ability to provide for your needs is, is key. But I think um, you know, go back to that sort of Texas example, I think, um, uh, or, you know, all the food bank example, increasingly people are going to be faced with the realisation. I mean, in some places, I think, you know, there will be very enlightened governance and, the, you know, the sort of work that Jane's done in Wales is a great example of that. In other places, I think the state is, you know, already palpably is kind of withdrawing and leaving people to figure these things out for themselves. So I guess part, you know, essentially that that's, the part four of my book, I sort of talk about this in terms of, of of the sort of drift of global politics. I think increasingly people are going to have to figure this sort of thing out for themselves locally. You know, how do we, you know, how can we provide for our needs? That can go horribly wrong in all sorts of ways and people can invest in pre-existing inequities. Um, but, it, you know, but it can go right. You know, people, uh, you know, there's endless examples of the ways in which people can work together collectively locally to um you know to to to, to meet their needs and to, and to meet everyone's needs so you know that's i suppose what i'm trying to do is accentuate the positive within a um you know within a in some ways a negative framework i mean people seeing people talking online about um doomer optimism which is sort of <laughs> kind of an interesting phrase but i think you know i think we have to take seriously the fact that so many of the ways in which the world has been organized um you know in recent times are reaching the end of the line and you know that 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 is a frightening prospect in many ways but it does create opportunities for us to rethink and to really seriously address you know the equity issue that you've raised, which has not been well addressed by, um, but by by the sort of the, the, the existing structures of the global economy. 
You're listening to Planet Pod. You can now support the podcast by becoming a patron. In return, we offer bonus material and a chance for you to get involved in the programme. Find out more by visiting planetpod.com. I think that's such an important point um, because, there, and I am also um, definitely in the sort of optimism camp uh, here, that we we have seen such um, a kind of bearing down on public services um, over the last decade or so, that actually we, I mean, we know in Wales that there's 40% less public money around. So there'll be there'll be 40% less public money around in all four nations, because that's governed by Westminster in, in, in each case. And we also know that if if we look at the campaign that Marcus Rashford led in the context of free school meals, he only had to lead it in England. You may not have realised that because of the way that the BBC uh, translates UK and England um, uh, often in quite opaque ways. He didn't have to lead it in Scotland or Wales because they were already maintaining the support. And partly that is due to a different values framework. Um, in Scotland, it's very explicit in, in the context of well-being economics. And Scotland and Wales, along with uh, Iceland, uh, along with New Zealand, along with Denmark and Canada and others, are coming together in the context of that well-being economics type of approach. So I think there is now a recognition, and particularly among young people, that actually the austerity, the bearing down, the lowering of taxes, the removal of public services is leading us to a point when we cannot act effectively on climate change. And climate change has to be acted upon. And without governments, there will be a lot of individual actions. And there are more individual actions than I've ever seen in my political lifetime at the moment. But those need to be coalesced and supported by government. And that needs to be done in the way that government frames both legislation and funding. So there is the biggest opportunity ever, I think, actually, in my lifetime to bring those elements together now and to be hopeful that governments are accountable, not just to the current generation of voters, which in most countries is over the age of 60, and in many cases are those people who are retired and therefore relatively well off. But actually, if government is going to engage with the populations uh, underneath that group, then it has to deliver hope. So uh, for the first time ever, <laughs> well, actually, maybe I should say for the first time since 2009, when I was in Copenhagen, when we did think we were going to get an amazing climate deal and we didn't. But for the first time since then, I actually feel that the COP conference this year will be forced to deliver not least because of the effect that COVID has had on the opportunities and lives of future generations. And I also just want to pick up that point about, you know, I probably am in that, in, I'm definitely in that um, model for Chris of, you know, those people who were, you know, had, had an income, were able to bring that to the countryside and to buy a small holding. And we did that um, in 2009. And the really interesting thing about that was that what we bought 
um, A, the estate agent didn't tell us about the land initially. It was a tiny, tiny thing at the bottom of the uh, particulars, you know, the house came with something around 10 acres. But because it was in such a state, it had been a market garden 30 years before. And it actually took us three months to find the greenhouse under the brambles, <laughs> etc. Um, now, of course, it would be the land that sold our house. Yeah, then our house was um, only worth two-thirds of our Cardiff property in a mining village. Now it probably would be worth more. So circumstances change and this understanding now that land is important, I think is incredibly important in the context of the debate. Then the, the farms would have been pretty well all farmer owned. Now there's about a thousand acres for sale. And every time I talk to a farmer, they're also tenanting other farms because that profile of farmers themselves is over the age of 65 and their children aren't necessarily managing the land. So there's so much turmoil around at the moment. So you put Brexit into that as well. And suddenly you find that Wales, which has been exporting cattle and sheep and is not the growing in the context of the commodity crops, but exporting large amounts of cattle and sheep way beyond its population, but growing only 3% of its fruit and veg. You know, we've got to turn these things, we've got to flip the whole debate because we need to make sure that we grow our fruit and veg enough for our nations. We need to make sure that we have enough food linked to farming to feed our nations. And that should be the fundamental position that we start from. And, and for me, fundamentally, this goes back to Maslow's hierarchy of need. I think that a government, a, an ethical, responsible government, which is what agroecology uh, um, is, uh, is, is pr provisioned on, must look after clean air, clean water, safety and food for its populations. And if we got back to that, every country would have an equivalent for Wellbeing of Future Generations Act. Yeah, and the state is a huge actor in this, isn't it? I mean, and it's really important. And I would agree with you, Chris, that individuals will be taking action and communities will be taking action. But we need that state architecture to make this happen. Jane, I'm, I'm tempted to ask the question some people will ask is, there's all of the examples you gave, you know, Denmark and Iceland and, 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 and Wales, essentially quite small communities, quite small populations, small countries, not necessarily in terms of landmass, but certainly in terms of population, um, even Canada, you know, relatively small. Is it possible to translate that model to, you know, to, to England, the, you know, one of the other four nation states, which is densely populated without as much land and, you know, control perhaps has less opportunity to give people the freedom and the access of the kind that I think you're talking about to make this work in terms of access to land. So can we take the small, the small model and upscale it to a larger country with a denser population? Well, one of the reasons I'm, 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 we called the book Lessons from a Small Country is to say, the model for Wales won't work in a different setting, but the values framework underpinning the model might. And, and interestingly, in the context of England, that work is ongoing at the moment. Um, Lord John Bird of Big Issue fame um, is actually taking forward a private member's bill. Uh, initially through the House of Lords, it's going into the House of Commons in, in May with the support of Caroline Lucas to look at translating elements of the Welsh experience into an English uh, Wellbeing of Future Generations Act. And I think that's really 
exciting because they will want to do some things in different ways. They're already talking about um, defining what is important through citizens' assemblies. They want to give uh, more powers to a future generations commissioner. We have one in Wales, um, and she would argue she doesn't have enough powers. Um, but in England, because it's a larger country, it may well be that the commissioner needs more powers in terms of making it work. So it's going to be quite interesting to actually look at how this is operating potentially differently and immediately has to operate differently in, in, in the size of the opportunities. But just staying with the land theme at the moment, one of the things that has become a model from Wales which could translate anywhere is something I was able to introduce with the, my planning ministry functions uh, a decade ago, which are called One Planet Developments. And they require people who are prepared to get half their income off a business of the land. Uh, and then they can apply for a specific planning category, One Planet Developments, if they live zero carbon lives and get half their income off the land. Now, these are really developing hugely in Wales at the moment because people are really keen to see what else they can do with the land. So it's an immense opportunity for experimentation on the land supported by government. Um, it is something which the farmers are really mixed about in terms of support. Um, some of them feel very antagonistic on the basis that, you know, they want to build their retirement bungalow for um, the current farmers, and that is often concrete and very definitely <laughs> no carbon, and they, and they feel that they cannot do that, that the planning system is against them, so they don't like the idea of these new possibilities. But I think at a time that, as Chris says, we've got to do everything about this, that we need to think of new ways of harnessing decent incomes off the land, that we should be doing as many one planet development type models as possible. And we've seen massive opportunities through uh, you know, the Ecological Land Trust and others. I know Chris is very in, in, involved in this and different models that the Land Commission is proposing in Scotland. So there is a, a huge underswell of young people in particular who really want to turn their perhaps amateur gardening skills into their lifestyle because they want to be part of being a good ancestor. They want to be part of saying, we did not participate in this um, climate damage, but we do want to participate in responding successfully to this. So there's a, a huge opportunity to turn this moment into a real movement. Well, uh, just to add to that, you know, I agree with what Jane just said about the, the underswell, but I think in, in terms of your question about translating something like FutureGen to England, I think it's not only about size or population density, it's partly about political culture and ideology. There's a kind of, uh, I mean, I don't want to get too into the politics of Brexit or whatever, but I think bigger countries uh, can have sort of delusions of grandeur, essentially, that, um, you know, that they're playing on this world stage and they're very invested in, you know, in all of these older models we were talking about, you know, sort of traditional economic growth or traditional sort of international rail politic. Whereas, you know, I think the advantage of a, of a small country can be, um, or, or it doesn't really have to be at the country level. I think, you know, we need to get beyond that, you know, it, just in terms of 
um, you know, rethinking, you know, what you, you're driving at, what you want in your community or in your region. Um, but that's where I think, you know, it get, gets complicated because, you know, it's relatively possible to define those things and and to come up with solutions, but they, you know, they're all sort of interconnected in terms of uh, sort of larger, you know, larger forces driving the, the world and in particular kind of energy, climate, economic and concentrations of political power so that's where you know i think we've really got to harness you know as jane was saying that you know there is that underswell particularly of young people who you know for all sorts of reasons are aware of uh, you know the what's happening in the future that their, their futures you know the way that politics is, isn't necessarily doing them any favors so we certainly need to seize that moment but i think it's you know we've got to move beyond the kind of single solutionist sort of you know the answer to climate change is you know this technology or that technology you know it's a much wider conversation about citizenship ultimately and and, and inclusion of people yeah and it echoes jane's points in the act, doesn't it, about collaboration. But Chris, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about this element of, of community and resilience, because there's a there's a there's a real problem, I think, with this, the state of perceived status of working on the land. And we see, you know, one of the impacts of Brexit is that we haven't got the influx of European workers and farmers already saying that they're only going to be harvesting percentage of their crop. They're wasting 10, 20, 30, 50% of crops because they haven't got people to harvest them. So so there's a problem there about how people perceive life on the land and working on the land if they're not Mm. in the position of being the owner occupier of that farm is that where the idea of a kind of community ownership and and perhaps building greater resilience for communities by having shared ownership of land might be coming in is that something that we could do to shift that dial so everybody feels invested in working and it isn't seen as a a low status low skilled laboring type post which is what i think people view a lot of agri jobs as yeah interesting question i mean i think uh, a lot of these things do have historical resonances. You know, I think people often present farming as being very hard work, which it can be, but there's, you know, there's all sorts of, you know, there's many jobs which involve hard work and, and a lot of people are, you know, are, you know, we often extol the virtues of hard work. So my sense is that's not really what that narrative about farming is, but I think it's very much more that historical memory of, uh, I mean, I talk about peasantries quite a lot in my book, uh, you know. You do, you use the peasant word. (laughs) (laughs) And I think, you know, there's this real sense, it's not the, it's not the work, it's the sense of powerlessness of being under the thumb of, um, you know, of of a landowner or an aristocrat or, you know, it, and I think this is very, you know, it's it's very historically specific to different areas in the States. You know, it's more about, well, you know, there's a whole history of, of a sort of violent colonial frontier and homesteading and sort of creating a, a, a sort of frontier society that has all sorts of resonances, again, that people are quite happy to say, you know, well, thank goodness, we're, you know, that's that's not where we are now. And, and, you know, increasingly, I think young people are switching on to this. You know, I've sort of been involved in, you know, agroecology or so-called alternative farming for 20 odd years at the start of that. I'd go to things like the Oxford Real Farming Conference and I was about the youngest person there, whereas now I'm, I'm I mean, obviously I've aged in the last 20 years, but you know, there's a there's a lot more young, um, you know, thoughtful people getting involved in, in, in the sector. So I think that in some sense, that old idea of, you know, farming as being a, a sort of miserable life under the thumb of a feudal lord is, is fading a bit. But in terms of ownership models, yeah, you know, when, when you look at uh, all sorts of agrarian societies, you know, land, kind of as Jane was saying in where she's living, you know, land 
ownership and access to land can be a fantastically complicated and it, and it has to be a fantastically complicated thing because ultimately the land is you know is what gives us life and we and you know and so we need to negotiate these the, the boundaries very very well and very carefully i mean in terms of collective ownership uh, yeah that can be a model i mean i talk about commons quite a lot in in my book and you know in, in inherently uh, anything that people do you know we you know we are a collective species we have to work together but i think we have to be careful um, you know i talk about the what i call the elemental commons whereas if you look at a lot of agrarian societies the things that people really work collectively on are things where you have to manage the kind of whole landscape level. So, you know, in some places that will be something like fire risk. In other places, it will be irrigation, sort of water management or, you know, terraforming the the landscape. But often people work, you know, in a day-to-day way, people will work in smaller units and, and particularly I emphasize household units because it's Burnishing the household and not having more grandiose ambitions, I think, is a good way of, of sort of grounding this back in what we need as, as individuals, families, households, communities. And I think, uh, you know, people, it's possible to sort of build a bit too much collectivity into these things sometimes, you know. I mean, I kind of live in an agricultural community in a sense myself. And, you know, you really do need to sort of, you know, nail down the details of how you work with people. You talk to anyone who lives in a community and they're desperate for a bit of autonomy and space. So it's kind of about having a nuanced debate about that. You know, it's, it's, not, it's not all about everyone just having their own bit of land, uh, but it's also not about always working together collectively on everything it's about you know re- really sort of making that work for people at a local level which you know and, and we can look to um you know to I mean, again going back to the the p word peasants you know if you look at the sort of whole history of agrarian societies people have figured this stuff out in enormous detail and 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 you know never there's never a perfect solution but i think you know we it it, it is worth looking at these historic examples including you know, in the history of Britain and the different parts of Britain, because there's a lot to be learned from people who did live sort of relatively localised, low impact, low energy lives and the way they figured this stuff out. So, yeah, so certainly yes to to commons and ways of organising collectively, but also to be aware of <laughs> the arguments that go on and that, and, and, you know, good commons are, are, are always, um, you know, they always involve, you know, not being too romantic about how, People are always going to get on. You've got to build conflict resolution into you know into this stuff from from the get go. Yeah, you have in Wales. Interestingly enough, um, we have the first planned eco village um, in the UK. It's called Lammas. It's in um, North Pembrokeshire, not very far from where I live. And you know what Chris is saying is so important because the the the, the structure of that village is effectively a commons. Um, and they they have really struggled in many ways uh, through the years in the context of finding the way that everybody can work together in that context. You know, everybody bought into the idea, but the structure has turned out to be quite a constraint upon them. Whereas quite a lot of other One Planet developments have, have opted for very different sorts of structure. But that the, if you turn the sort of commons into community, community is a really strong aspect in, in Wales. And the one of the, the another big, you know, sort of benefits that we might not have anticipated from COVID has been that, that Wales, which is really strong on community anyway, has become even stronger. Yeah. And it's one of the, the sort of COVID cliches, isn't it, that we've that we've created 
recreated the communities or reconnected with the communities that were there that we've neglected because of the pace of our life, I think. And and the really important thing about that statement, I absolutely agree with it, is that actually it creates all sorts of new opportunities within those communities as well, because there is a greater trust built in the context of those communities. There's greater care. So all those things around the way we live our lives and, you know, some of the things that I mean, I felt we we lost when we lost um, the Royal Mail, <laughs> the post office, you know, in the sense that I just remember the um, the post office uh, union members talking about the fact that what they used to do was they'd check whether or not milk had been taken in on a doorstep or all those sorts mm-hmm. of elements. In COVID, we've had that back mm-hmm. again. Yeah. And it's actually a really important part of placemaking. Um, and this notion that, you know, where you live is actually the sort of fundament that drives who you are, your family relationships and everything else. And one of the things that's really excited me out of the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act in Wales is there's been a lot of work on what we what, what we call here the foundational economy. So all those things that service your daily lives, the Welsh Government has put a lot of money into looking at how those can be improved. How, for example, a project I was involved in the early stages, you can look at whether or not the public sector funding by all the public sector getting together to procure food could drive new local food businesses um, at a county level. And that to me is so exciting. This is about government getting right back to dealing with the things that matter to people in their daily lives. And there's been an incredibly interesting report produced by the Food Farming and Countryside Commission called Farming for Change, which looks through to 2030, which demonstrates that agroecology can work, it can feed the nation. But we really have to then look at how government supports those people who cannot afford what may well be an additional cost, certainly in the early years. So the government integration with what happens, particularly around these base elements of how people need food, shelter, clean air, clean water, etc., to survive, that government relationship has to change fundamentally in terms of actually taking this agenda forward. I'm mindful we've just scratched the surface. There is so much more to say, and, and it's just so wonderful to have such positive optimism, but also practical, so practical from both of you. And, and I'm hugely grateful to you. We'll have to have you back because I think there's, you know, we need to go around this conversation <laughs> in more depth again. For those listeners who want to know more, there are two beautiful books, obviously, Jane's book, Future Gen, uh, Lessons from a Small Country, and Chris's A Small Farm Future. I won't give you the subtitle, it's too long. Both available from <laughs> chelseagreen.com or from your local bookstore, please buy locally. And if you can't, get it on The Hive, which is the only online bookstore that supports local retailers and small publishers. So a huge thank you to my guest, to Jane. It's been just lovely being here and talking to Chris again. I could Great. do it forever. <laughs> yeah, me too. And thank you to you, Chris. Fantastic to have you on the programme. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks very much. It was great talking with you. And my thanks to Rose at Chelsea Green for supporting Planet Pod and to our producer, Jim Haywood. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram. And if you like the programme, try and rate us on your podcast app because it helps. And do get in touch if you've got ideas for future programmes and future conversations. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management. My thanks to our producer, Jim Haywood, and our researcher, Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners, without you, we'd be very lonely. 
You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programs. Thanks for listening. Thank you.